Reading from Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Lord God, you gave us life by your spirit as you created us, breathing your breath into our nostrils. And you gave us new life through the spirit of your son by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Please sanctify us by that same spirit. Through him, give us fresh eyes to see your glory. Please make us discerning so we can understand your word. By your spirit, pour out your love, joy and peace into our hearts so we can know you better and tell everyone what you've done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yesterday we looked at the opening verses of Hebrews 1 and we had an introduction to the Trinity. We saw that Jesus is God's son, not just another son like the angels, or kings of Israel, he's God's literal son who comes from God and is exactly like God and who shares in everything God is and does in unbroken unity. And we saw too that Jesus is God's heir, that the father chose to make him ruler and saviour of the world from the beginning. But so far, I hear you say, that's not the Trinity, that's ability. Where does the Holy Spirit come in? Is he like another son, but a bit different? Is he really a person at all, or more of a force? Where would he fit on that diagram I put up yesterday? Well, what I hope to show you uh, in part today is that he's already been there, we just haven't noticed him yet. Let's backtrack a bit. In Hebrews 1, we saw that Jesus comes to us Uh, as God's true son and the radiance of his glory. He comes from God his Father, and everything he is and does and says points back to the Father. But the Gospels show us that all of this, from the manger to the cross, is a work 
of the Spirit. When Jesus comes into the world, as we just read, uh, as God's son, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. As Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Notice here that it's the Spirit uh, who is the means by which Mary becomes pregnant. He's the one who overshadows Mary. But that doesn't make the Spirit Jesus' father. Rather, somehow the Spirit is the means by which Jesus will be holy and will be known as the Son of God. This pattern uh, doesn't stop there. The Spirit who begins the life of Jesus in this world also empowers and directs his ministry. When Jesus goes to the Jordan to be baptised by John, God sends his, down his Spirit as a dove, simultaneously declaring You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. In the very next verse, in Mark 1.12, we read that the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted after that. When that temptation is complete, Luke tells us that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, Luke 4.14. Then he heads straight to the synagogue and reads from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And then he tells everyone that this scripture has been fulfilled in their hearing. Jesus is all about the Spirit. He's the man of the Spirit, which should be no surprise because he's the Messiah. Isaiah uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy with justice he will give decisions to the poor, for the poor of the earth. The promised Messiah, in other words, is going to be a ruler directed and shaped by God's spirit and who will therefore rule in God's name and according to God's desire. And here comes Jesus, wholly directed and shaped by the Holy Spirit. Now notice again the relationship between the spirit and the father here. Just as the Spirit is the mediator or matrix, for better words, uh, of Jesus' birth, so he is the means by which Jesus' words and actions come from the Father. John makes the same point uh, in uh, John 3, 34-35. For the one whom God sent uh, has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Jesus' miracles follow the same pattern. In Matthew, when the Pharisees say that Jesus is casting out Satan by the power of Satan, he warns them against blaspheming the Holy Spirit. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Everything Jesus does and says is enabled by the Spirit. As Peter sums it up in his sermon to Cornelius in Acts 10.38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. 
Notice how he puts those two things in parallel. Jesus went around doing good and, and healing. One, because God anointed him with power and the Holy Spirit. And two, because God was with him. The presence of the Spirit, in other words, is the presence of God. Or to put it another way, the Spirit is the way the Father is present in the life of Jesus. As a side note here, notice how this makes Jesus both like and unlike other human beings. Like other human servants of God, Jesus is going to be empowered and directed by the Spirit. But the extent and degree is completely different. And there's something about the mode that is different too. In Luke 1, we hear about the birth of John the Baptist. Uh, He's going to be the greatest of all prophets, we find out later. And we hear that he is going to have the Spirit earlier than anybody ever has. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born, says the angel in Luke 1.15. Later in the same chapter, of course, we see that uh, prediction confirmed as John leaps in the womb as Mary comes to visit her cousin. But Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's not just a prophet who receives the Spirit to do his work. Somehow Jesus' existence itself is a direct work of the Spirit. The Spirit is the very foundation of his being. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, Luke 4.18. So John's way of having the Spirit makes him a great prophet. Jesus' way of having the Spirit makes him God's Son. So where does that put the Spirit in relation to the Father and the Son? Uh, if, we are, if what we are seeing in the life of Jesus applies to the Trinity, uh, where would the Spirit fit in between the Father and Son in, in the, um, the diagram that I drew yesterday? Let's have a look at the first one. Thanks, Dave. He might be kind of like that, mightn't he? Kind of between the Father and the Son. We had that arrow yesterday. Uh, now it looks like, at least in the life of the incarnate Jesus, uh, That's the Holy Spirit doing that. He is a person mediating the Father to the Son. Now, I'm not sure. I can't prove that that's how it works in the the eternal trinity. It seems to be how it works in the incarnate life of Jesus. But if it is how it works in the eternal trinity, it helps us understand a few things and solves a few problems. First, it would kind of simplify things by making the spirit the divine essence. In Christian orthodoxy, Jesus is God's true son because he shares in God's nature or or essence, as all children do. Let it it be repeated, writes Athanasius, a work is external to a nature, but a son is the proper offspring of an essence. Who hears of a son and thinks of anything other than something that is proper to the father's essence? For a son is by nature one with him who begat him. Francis Turretin offers a similar summary. All generation indicates a communication of essence on the part of the begetter to the begotten, by which the begotten becomes like the begetter and partakes of the same nature with him. So this wonderful generation is rightly expressed as a communication of essence from the father by which the the son possesses indivisibly the same essence with him and is made perfectly like him. But in the Bible and in the incarnation, it seems that the Holy Spirit is the one who is taking the place of the essence or doing the job of the essence. The Spirit is doing all that the essence does, coming from the Father to bring forth a son. 
making the Father's Son one in word and action. Another problem that uh, this might help us with uh, is that it would, it would help us, I think, think a bit more about the strange difference between the personhood of the Spirit and that of the Father and the Son. We know that the Spirit is a person in some sense, don't we, when we read the New Testament? Uh, we see that he's another counsellor. He speaks and guides. He, there are things that seem good to him. He can be lied to and grieved. Uh, we baptise in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And yet in many ways he's a shadowy person compared to the Father and Spirit. Paul often leaves him out of the introductions to his letters. There's no talk of the Father and Son loving the Spirit or vice versa. When we get visions of heaven in Revelation, we get God and Jesus. Uh, but the Holy Spirit, if he's there, is candlesticks or eyes or something. But if the Spirit is like the essence of God, then it makes sense that his personhood would be a bit different. It would be like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.11, where he talks about how only our own spirits truly know our thoughts. As if our spirits were both us and sort of distinguishable from us. A strange idea to us, I think. C.S. Lewis proposes a slightly different metaphor, drawing on the tradition of Augustine. He suggests that the spirit is like the spirit of a society or institution. He says, the union between father and son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. It's as if a, a sort of communal personality came into existence. Of course, it's not really a person. It's only rather like a person. But that's just one of the differences between God and us. What grows out of the, life, the joint life of the Father and Son is a real person, is, in fact, the third of the three persons who are God. Now, I, I probably have a few quibbles with the way he puts it there. Uh, but I think it helpfully highlights the way the Spirit turns up in the middle of relationships. The Spirit is all about mediating other persons. We've already seen a little bit how the Spirit mediates the fatherhood of God to the earthly Jesus, to the incarnate Jesus. How he's the one who enables Jesus to do and say whatever God wants him to do. But the Spirit also mediates uh, Jesus and his Father to us. In the farewell discourse, John 14, 17 to 18, Jesus says, The world cannot accept the spirit of truth because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and be, will, will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In other words, Jesus comes to us with the coming of the Holy Spirit. A few verses later, uh, John 14, 23, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Again, the implication seems to be here that the Holy Spirit is the means by which the Father and Son come to us and make their home with us. So the Spirit is coming and his presence is going to be the presence of the Father and the Son. And this pattern, of course, is everywhere in the New Testament once you start to look for it. The Spirit is the one who unites us to, to Jesus, who baptizes, in, who baptizes us into the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12. The Spirit makes churches to be temples where God dwells uh, by his Holy Spirit, Ephesians 2.22. The, the Spirit marries individual believers to Christ in 1 Corinthians 6.17. 
In Romans 8.10, the spirit is simply Christ in you. Not simply, there are other things he's described as there too. Uh, In Galatians 4.6, he's the spirit of God's son who causes us to cry out to the father with the same words Jesus used. In 2 Corinthians 3.17-18, the spirit is the Lord Jesus at work in us, changing us to be in his likeness. And we could go on at great length here, obviously. The spirit is a mediating person and he facilitates the action and coming of the other persons. Again and again we see that. But his great work, to go back again, is to facilitate the coming of Jesus. Let me unpack that a bit more. We've already seen uh, the work of the Spirit in the life of the earthly life of Jesus. We've seen him bringing the Son into the world. We've seen the Spirit giving him life uh, and power and ability to do and say the works of God. We've seen the Spirit, in other words, enabling him to be who he is in this world, the Son of God. Be again what he is in eternity. But of course the Spirit's work of bringing Jesus into the world doesn't actually begin with the womb of Mary. Jesus comes, as Luther puts it, swaddled in Scripture. The Spirit has already prepared the world and history and made promises and prophecies and established typologies. The thoughts in Jesus' head come not just from the Holy Spirit directing him directly, they come from the Spirit speaking out of the centuries and the scrolls. The Spirit has been setting the stage of his his appearing uh, for thousands of years. Even in the Old Testament times, the Spirit was the Spirit of Christ, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 10 to 11. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ was in them, uh, was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. So even in the Old Testament, the Spirit was the Spirit of Christ. He was already on the job, bringing Jesus into the world. Uh, Just uh, signs and shadows to start with. Then in the womb of Mary, the incarnate person himself. uh, And in the words and actions that defined Jesus' ministry. And of course the pattern continues. At the cross, for example, he offered himself unblemished to God through the eternal spirit, Hebrews 9.14. And then his resurrection, 1 Peter 3.18, he was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. And Romans 1.4, through the spirit of holiness, he was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Wherever Jesus is and whatever he's doing, the spirit is there enabling him. And he goes on doing that same work after the ascension as well. He brings Jesus to the world through the witness of the apostles and through the mission of the church from Pentecost onwards, of course. He causes the glory of Jesus to shine in dark hearts so sinners can receive him. He baptizes Christians into the body of Christ and enables us to use our gifts to build each other up and speak the truth in love so that Jesus' corporate body can be extended and strengthened. So let me try and uh, 
used a couple of visual analogies to illustrate what I'm saying. I've got one coming up. Thanks, Dave. Uh, this is not an attempt to draw the Trinity. None of my diagrams, by the way, are an attempt to draw the Trinity or God. They're an attempt to illustrate relations between concepts. Just remember that. I'm not trying to draw God. Anyway, <laughs> uh, here is a, another attempt to create a visual metaphor for, the, for, the, for what we see in the earthly life of Jesus. We see Jesus, the, Jesus, the, story, the, the story of Jesus, uh, kind of visualised as a film strip there, brought forth from the Father by means of the Spirit. Uh, he is empowered and illuminated by the Spirit. The Father shines through him. And then after his, well actually during, but especially after his ascension, the Spirit uh, goes on too. The Spirit now comes from Christ, receive, he receives the Spirit from the Father and now sends him to his people to project his image onto his church. So with one action we have uh, the Spirit coming from the Father uh, to illuminate the Father's Son who is now projected by that same Spirit onto the people of God to transform them and unite them and bring them to maturity in Christ. That's one model. Here's, a, here's something uh, a bit more cosmic. Let's go to the next one. Thanks, Steve. Um, so we start out with that same image that we saw before. Now, let's have a look at creation. We'll, we'll use drop shadows to show it's not on the same level. It's a contingent reality. Okay. God creates uh, a world and things in the world through his son and through the spirit again. Um, 33 verse 6, of course, was the great uh, proof text of that, the God creating the heavens through his word and spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit, the, from, from the Son, God's co-creator, the Holy Spirit brings forth uh, humans, uh, Israel, scripture, kings, the temple, sacrifice, and on and on and on. It's not an exhaustive list, obviously. Uh, then Jesus comes into the world. Next slide, please. And all those things fit together in him. We find that here, here is somebody who assembles in himself, draws together all the promises and types and realities that God, contingent realities that God has been sending out, uh, and they subsist some, somehow now in his person. Not not on the same level as his eternal uh, sonship, but he is the same person. The Holy and now what happens next is the Holy Spirit from him goes forth. Next slide, please. Thank you. The Holy Spirit now builds Christ's body. Uh, he does have legs. I don't know why I drew legs. All parts of the body are important. In 1 Corinthians 12, we need legs and feet. Sorry if your legs or feet. Uh, uh, but again, we're try I'm trying to show here a unified, co a comprehensive kind of pattern. So what I'm trying to show in these talks is that the Trinity has a very particular structure and order. The persons of the Trinity aren't like three guys who take it in turns to do stuff. They are a dynamic, unified reality, issuing from one person, moving out through one personal energy 
to produce another person in eternity, the eternal reality that is the Christian God. And when the persons of the Trinity work in the world, uh, they follow this same pattern. The Father is the source of that work. The Son defines the final form and focal point of that work. And the Spirit brings that work to completion or to perfection in the terminology of uh, church history. And we honour the persons of the Trinity according to the way they work on these projects. We praise the Father, from whom everything originates. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. We praise the Father as the source of every good thing, the one from whom all things come and to whom they must return or be lost. We thank the Father for all his goodness and kindness, which we see most clearly displayed in his Son. We marvel at his sovereign power and the wisdom we see in his plan that was set out before the creation of the world. We honour the Holy Spirit as the one who works powerfully to bring that plan to its completion, who brings life and energy forth from the Father, who irresistibly and ineffably directs everything to its appointed end, even the wicked as they rage against him. We honour the Holy Spirit who works now through the word and its proclamation, through every gift and every member of the church, uh, to spread the message and rule of God's Son and to begin the assimilation of all things to him. And we glorify Jesus Christ, the Son of God, man of the Spirit. We honour him as the focal point and reason uh, of the Father's plans. And we wonder as we see all God's promises come together in him. We rejoice to learn of the Father's love for him and his response to the Father. And we overflow with thanks as we discover that through the Spirit we are united with Jesus. We are co-heirs with him in his inheritance and more astonishingly still adopted as his brothers and sisters who can call on his Father. So Trinitarian Christianity is Christocentric, not because we ignore the Father or Spirit, but because we see that both of them tell us to look to Jesus. We glorify God the Father by bending the knee to Jesus his Son. We honour the Spirit by seeking to magnify Jesus in our hearts and words and actions and ministry, knowing that this is his great project. Or as Jesus puts it, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is, it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. So let me ask finally, uh, how are we seeking a richer experience of the Holy Spirit? I take it we all agree that this is something we, we should be pursuing we want to be full of the Holy Spirit, as Paul charges us in Ephesians 5. We want God to fill us and those to whom we minister with joy, peace and hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we read in Romans 5 and Romans 5, 15, 13. We want to be changed into the image of the Lord with ever-increasing glory by the Spirit. How are we seeking these great blessings? Well, there are lots of great things we could be doing, aren't there? Many things scripture exhorts us to do in light of the Spirit's work. 
a very incomplete list. We could be working hard to help people use their gifts to speak the truth in love. We could be seeking to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in ourselves and others. We could be speaking to one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, songs and submitting and loving. We could be avoiding foolish talk and coarse joking so as not to uh, offend the Holy Spirit. We could be fervently praying that God would send his spirit to us. One of the passages that has been most encouraging to me in these uh, recent years of apostasy amongst God's people is Luke 11, where Jesus speaks of the importunate neighbor who bothers his his neighbor um, uh, late at night. And the application is that God will send his spirit to us when we bother him about it. If we want to remain Christians, if we want our the people we minister to, our families to remain Christians, we should be bothering God for his spirit. These are all vitally important things, aren't they? And if you wanted a bit of great homework, you could read through the New Testament and find out a a longer list, all the things that we might do uh, to invite the spirit's activity amongst us. What things are we exhorted to do in light of the spirit's presence? And yet, none of them will do much good if we don't grasp the spirit's central desire and project that is his desire to magnify and illuminate Jesus the most important spiritual quests have to focus on him let me finish with a great quote from John Owen who I think uh, says it better than I can Do any of us find decays in grace prevailing in us? Deadness, coldness, lukewarmness, kind of spiritual stupidity and senselessness coming upon us? Do we find an unreadiness unto the exercise of grace in its proper season and the vigorous acting of it in its duties and communion with God? Would we have our souls recovered from these dangerous diseases? Some will say that this must be affected by fresh supplies and renewed communications of the Holy Spirit. Unless he fall as dew and showers on our dry and barren hearts, unless he cause our graces to spring, thrive and bring forth fruit, unless he revive and increase faith, love and holiness in our souls, our backsliding will not be healed, nor our spiritual state be recovered. And to this end, he is prayed for and promised in Scripture. And so it is. The immediate efficiency of the revival of our souls is from and by the Holy Spirit. But what is the way or means? This, the apostle declares, we beholding the glory of Christ in a glass are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even by the Spirit of the Lord. It is in the exercise of faith on Christ that the Holy Spirit Spirit puts forth his renewing, transforming power in and upon our souls. This, therefore, is that alone which will retrieve Christians from their present decays and deadness. So in the end, I'm ending this talk the same way I ended the last one. Uh, Look to Jesus, the honour and glory of Jesus. That's what the Father wants, the proud Father. That's what the Spirit wants as he brings Jesus into the world, into the church, into our hearts and minds into the nations. Dear Heavenly Father, we dare to call you Father because you sent your, your Son to save us and your Spirit into our hearts. Please, by that same Spirit, keep working in us 
Fill our eyes with Jesus and our hearts with your love. Make us overflow with thanks and energise us to serve you. Please light up our lives and ministries. Change us with ever-increasing glory into the image of your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen.